Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. We're continuing to read from these texts uh, in John's Gospel, uh, some of the final selections. Uh, this, this is a, a readings that come before Jesus is arrested and, and eventually crucified. We're reading them right now because uh, we kind of join those disciples in this waiting season. Specifically, we're waiting for Pentecost. And so uh, that's why we read them. And of course, next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. And so we will transition uh, as we get to, to June 5th. Uh, today comes from John 17. And I'll just encourage you and invite you. Uh, John 17, it's, it's almost the entire chapter, uh, is a recording in John's Gospel of Jesus praying. And it's really unique to John's Gospel. And it's really lengthy. Uh, we can't read the whole thing this morning, but you could certainly read it on your own time fairly quickly. Uh, today we're just going to look at verses 20 through 26, but you might uh, think about reading the whole thing later today to get even a fuller grasp of what Jesus is saying in these prayers. So I invite you to hear these words of Scripture. This is from the Gospel according to John in chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The, glor the glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Again, let us pray. We give thanks today, God, for the gift of Scripture during an uncertain and challenging week. It's nice to return to the promises and good news of our faith found in these holy words. God, we pray as we read Scripture this morning that they would not just be words on a page for us, but that they would be words written on our heart, that they would be words that we live into as your disciples. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, as I was talking to the kids just a minute ago about, and some of you overheard that, in my house growing up, we had two landline phones. I'm just kind of curious by a show of hand, how many of you still have a landline phone in your house you use today? Janice? All right. You can call Janice at home if you need her, all right? So she'll be there. Yeah, so none of us have landlines anymore for the most part. Of course, we still have them in our businesses and schools and things like that. In our house, we had two phones. There was the main phone in the kitchen, uh, and then there was a phone in mom and dad's bedroom, right? And I remember sometime around six, seven, eight, nine, um, that I learned that if you went to the bedroom phone, you could listen in on the conversation in the kitchen, right? Uh, this was a really convenient fact for landline phones that we don't have with cell phones anymore you could if you were pretty crafty and careful you could carefully pick up the other phone and you could cover the microphone and you could listen in on the conversation on the other line 
You've done this before, I assume, yes? Uh, so I did that a few times when I was a kid until eventually I got a little clumsy with it one day uh, and my dad heard me on the other end um, and he was talking to my grandpa. I remember so clearly because I thought it was really sneaky. He was talking to my grandpa about something at the farm and we were going to move cattle from one side to the other and patch some fence. And I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm getting to hear this. You know, it's inside information about farming. Um, Dad hold, heard me fumbling the microphone, and I got a serious uh, chewing out, right? That eavesdropping is not something we do. We don't listen in on other people's conversations uh, without permission. That's a pretty helpful image, though, for thinking about this text we read this morning, John 17. It's kind of unique to John's gospel, and it's a little bit odd almost that it records Jesus praying this lengthy prayer Uh, And the writer of John's gospel uh, seems to be kind of eavesdropping, right? Sort of listening in to what Jesus is saying. And it's kind of a unique gift that we have this prayer in John 17 because it gives us some insight to if we knew what Jesus was thinking, what would it be? And and here we we get to read it ourselves. You may have had that experience otherwise in your life. I want you to think about maybe if you can remember a time or a person or a place where you've had the chance to overhear Uh, someone else praying. Uh, I've had a few opportunities in my life where I've heard other people praying, and there was something about the way in which they prayed, the essence, the spirit, the sincerity, that it felt like it was a real prayer. You know, like they were really talking to God, that God was right there with them, and they and God were having a a one-on-one conversation, and I was just getting to listen in. I remember Jill and I, we had a college pastor named David Davies, and he did our wedding whenever we got married. And he had this unique gift. Not only was he a really good preacher and speaker, but his prayers were so powerful. And when you heard David pray, uh, you felt like, man, he knows God, and he's talking to God, and, and we get to listen to it, right? And So overhearing other people pray, you may have had that experience in your own life. That's what's happening here in John 17. So I want to talk to you a little bit about this text and why it's important, and you might keep it up in your bulletin there. There are a few things going on. So first of all, uh, the other Gospels record Jesus. He has some final moments with the disciples. He goes to Gethsemane, and he prays that sort of prayer of anguish, you know, let this cup pass from me, and it says that his sweat becomes like drops of blood. That's recorded in Matthew and Luke. That's often what we think of Jesus doing before he's arrested and eventually crucified. But John's gospel, as is often the case, John's gospel puts the story together a little bit differently, uh, including this moment here. So this isn't the prayer of anguish in Gethsemane. Instead, this is this long prayer in John 17, which we often call kind of Jesus praying for the church. Jesus praying for the future of the church. And so you, you heard it as I was reading it just a moment ago. Now it gets a little tongue twisty as Jesus says, I am in you and you are in me and they are in me. And the, you know, it kind of gets a little weird. But basically what Jesus is saying is, you know, I'm praying for these disciples, those whom he's about to leave, that he will depart. But he says, I'm also praying for those who will come after them. And Jesus prays this real specific thing. He says, I pray that the oneness that is between you and I, so this is Jesus praying to God the Father, the oneness that is between you and I uh, may be maybe may made known in them. Right? Maybe made known in them. Now that sounds sort of like a pleasant thought, but I want you to pause with me and think about just kind of what a radical and important thing that Jesus is saying. When we think about God, we talk about God as the eternal trinity. Right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
always in relationship with one another across time, as far back in history as you can imagine, as far into the future as you can imagine, God is one bound together in God's own love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that eternal communion that is God's own self, Jesus prays in John 17, that whatever that love, that energy, that mystery, that hope, whatever it is that holds God together, that makes God the Father and God the Son be in relationship with one another, Jesus prays that that same sort of relationship would be extended to his disciples. That's a pretty remarkable and profound thing. The, the word from seminary that we would use here is Trinitarian participation. Trinitarian participation. Whatever's happening in the Trinity, whatever that relationship looks like, that we are invited to participate in it. We are, we are brought into God's own being. The oneness that is God is extended to Christ's followers. Real quick, when Edith was young, when she was learning to talk and she was learning some small words and some bigger words, we would practice Trinitarian participation on the way to school each morning until she could say it really well. Do you remember that? Yeah, that's an important phrase for me, and maybe it'll be an important phrase for you too. So it's a remarkable thing that Jesus prays here in John 17, and I invite you to kind of sort of wrap your mind around that, that Jesus prays the oneness, the uncomprehensible relationship that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that it now includes those disciples. And then Jesus prays the second part. He says, not only will they know this oneness, not only will these disciples be united together in this way, but the rest of creation, the rest of the people, everyone else, when they see the disciples united in this way, then it will be a testimony to God's goodness and love and character. So it's not only that Jesus wants us to sort of get along and stick together, but Jesus says when they get along and stick together, the rest of the world sees in the church the very character of God being revealed. That's really important, right? How will the world know what God is like? Because of the way the church interacts within itself. Because it loves one another, because it cares for one another, because it practices this holy unity. That's how the rest of the world knows what God is like. This week, I I stumbled on a sort of interesting article, and you'll have to bear with me as I do a little bit of history with you. I'll just remind you, we're going to kind of work backwards. The Methodist church was was, um, birthed out of the Anglican church. We separated from the Anglican church when we came to America. The Anglican church, of course, was birthed out of the Roman Catholic church, as well as other Protestant movements and the Protestant Reformation. If you go back even a little bit further, this is part of history that you may not remember as well, but the Roman Catholic church split off from another church, the Eastern church, in about the year 1054, 1054. So for about a thousand years, we had one church, and then we split into the East and the West, and then we split into Protestant and Catholics and Methodists and Anglicans, and we've just been dividing ever since. In 1054, the church split, and what we got was the Roman Catholic Church in the West, and so that's the Western church that we, by and large, know and recognize as the church we participate in. But in the East, what grew out of that split was what was called the Eastern Orthodox Church. And you hear that phrase a little bit sometimes, uh, particularly in the news right now. When you think about Eastern Europe, Greece, other places like that, you hear the phrase Orthodox Church. And that's the Eastern Church. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a Grecian Orthodox Church, there's a Ukrainian Orthodox Church, there's a Russian Orthodox Church. That's the Christianity that was birthed out of the East that broke off from the West in 1054. 
I bring that to your attention because as I was reading this week, there's sort of an interesting dynamic unfolding there in the Ukraine and in the Russian border during this war. Not only is there a political war going on there and there's lives being lost and it's a terrible tragedy, there's also something of a, of a religious war being fought as well. Because there are so many there in Russia who call themselves Russian Orthodox Christians. In fact, to be Russian is to be an Orthodox Christian. Those just go hand in hand. The same is, is true in Ukraine, though. There's almost everyone in Ukraine would consider themselves Ukrainian Orthodox Christians, and so they would broadly sort of find themselves under this Orthodox Christian tradition. And so we're not hearing a lot about this in the news, but this is creating a real religious crisis there for the leaders in Ukraine and Russia. Because not only do we have military interactions going on, but now we have Orthodox Christians from Russia going to war against Orthodox Christians in Ukraine. Christians versus Christians, Christians killing other Christians, Christians imprisoning other Christians, Christians causing other Christians to become refugees. This one particular person I read about from, uh, his name is Aristotle Papanikula. That's a great Greek name. He's an expert on Orthodox theology and the political implications there in Eastern Europe. And he wrote about, he talked about just what a religious crisis this is causing there on the Ukrainian-Russian border. What does it mean for people who share the same faith to go to war with one another, to kill one another? The United Methodist Church, you might be surprised to, to learn, the United Methodist Church is kind of in a similar position. Now, there aren't near as many United Methodists as there are Orthodox Christians. But in the United Methodist Church, the same bishop oversees all of Russia as well as Ukraine and a few other countries. And while that bishop has sort of tried to play the, the middle ground there, sort of making peace with both sides, it's become really increasingly difficult. In fact, there was an article that came out of the United Methodist work over there in Eastern Europe saying that now Ukraine, the United Methodists in Ukraine, they really feel disconnected from the United Methodists in Russia. And because their bishop is in Moscow, they would really like to break off. They'd like to have their own bishop who understands the Ukrainian needs, Ukrainian challenges, that they no longer feel connected to their Russian United Methodist brothers and sisters. One leader said that the Ukrainian church in, in the United Methodist Church in Ukraine finds itself in dire need of leadership as they struggle with their relationship with their surrounding countries, including how to be in ministry with one another, including a great number of refugees. Our own country is not immune to this sort of tradition. I'll remind you, do a little bit more history with you. Uh, the United Methodist Church has gone through a few different splits and renaming in the past. Particularly, we were the Methodist Episcopal Church for most of our history until in the 1800s. Our tradition, we divided into the Methodist Episcopal Church North and the Methodist Episcopal Church South. Just as the country divided and fought a civil war, the Methodist Church divided along with it. Churches on the north, churches on the south. Presumably there were Methodists in the north who went to battle with Methodists in the south, maybe even interacting on the battlefield. So our church, our Methodist church and the broader church, we sort of have an odd, an odd thing about us in that we have often succumbed to our political and our, our wartime realities over and against this good news of Jesus Christ. And the double-edged sort of significance of that is that often when the world finds itself in, in a dire situation, uh, as it has this week, when we find ourselves surrounded by violence and pain and, and anguish and disappointment, uh, Jesus says that the goal would be, the hope would be, 
that the church, in its oneness and its care for one another, would be reflecting the goodness of God. Right? That when the world is in shambles, when the world is broken, when the world is hurting, you could look to the church and you could say, look at how they care for one another. Look at how they are at peace with one another. Look at how they don't go to war with one another. And Instead, we've kind of, we've kind of failed to live up to that end of the, of the responsibility. It's been a hard week. It certainly has been in my mind and my spirit. I sense it has been in yours as well. Uh, I kept waiting every day to sort of feel better. It's like, oh, I'll feel better tomorrow, and then I'll write a great sermon. Uh, I'll feel better tomorrow, and then I'll write. And I just never really felt better all week. And I sense that's true for you, too. It's really difficult to watch these um, terrible tragedies unfold. But it is my joy to remind you that, that we here at the church, we've been given this unique this unique gift. And the gift that we've been given is nothing less, and I mean this with sincerity, nothing less than the very power that holds God's self together has been given to us. And Jesus says, just as he and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one, that the church also is one. And that's not just so that we'll get along and be nice. It's because we live in a world, and surely Jesus knew this when he was praying, we live in a world that is desperate, that is desperate to see a community of peace and hope and goodness and care. And so when Jesus prays this prayer, he's not just praying it for our benefit. He's praying that we would be a, a people of oneness, a people of love and of unity, so that we could witness to the world. Brokenness and violence and pain and war this is not what God intended, and there is a better way. So I guess my, my sermon for you this week is supposed to be a little bit of a challenge, a little bit of an encouragement, but the world as we know it is certainly not the world that God intended, and oftentimes the world that the church has lived into has failed to be the, the church that God intended. But that opportunity, that opportunity still stands before us. Christ prays that they might be one, and by being one, the world would know that God is one and God is love. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanks for the life and ministry of Jesus. Not only his healing and teaching and care, not only his death and resurrection, but today we give thanks that he prays for us and that the power of his relationship with you has been extended to the church. God, we confess that often the church has failed to live into this love, that we find ourselves dividing along the same political and military and economic lines as the rest of the world. God, remind us that the good news that we have in Jesus Christ is not just salvation after we die, but the good news we have in Jesus Christ is oneness and peace here and now on earth. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparagold.org. May God bless you this week.